all I know is that the idea of closing down something like grief, I think is, I think, deeply problematic and really unhealthy. And I think our society lends itself to closing it down, to like getting it over and done with, to fix it to a particular time. And then if you don't do that, then you're aberrant, you're an aberrant, you know, or you're, or you, they medicalize you and, you know, it's completely wrong. And I think we just need to find other ways and other language to think about how we stay healthy with, with trauma and, and grief included. Besharam, Batamiz, Chi Chi, Gandhi, Jalahata, Toba Toba, Oho, Bad Betty. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. This award-winning feminist podcast for and by South Asian women is all about cultural taboos, sex, sexuality, periods, mental health, menopause, nipple hair, shame, and many more taboos. Join me around my virtual kitchen table as I talk with some inspiring women from around the world, exploring what it means to be a South Asian feminist today. I interviewed Mona Arshi for Masala Podcast. And gosh, it was the most nourishing and positive conversation on grief. It's difficult to imagine that talking about grief can be uplifting, but it truly was. We circled around language, loss, love, and grief, of course. I've been a huge fan of Mona's work for years. Before she started writing poetry, Mona worked as a human rights lawyer at Liberty. Her poems and interviews had been published in The Times, The Guardian, Granta, Times of India, as well as the London Underground. Mona's debut novel, Somebody Loves You, is out now and I'm sure will win hearts and awards. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I've always, always read and loved poetry. It's been a really important part of my life. And even when I was a human rights lawyer, I I kind of needed it. I just felt very uh, seen in it and I felt less lonely when I, when I read it. And then I had my daughters, my twins, and I literally had quite an unstable pregnancy and I, and I had to stay in bed for quite a long time. And um, someone sent me a box of poems and books actually and... I hadn't kind of touched contemporary poetry for a long time and suddenly I was re-encountering language in a different way and I think it was something about what was happening to me um, uh, as a pregnant woman and the drama of the body (laughs) and then the drama of like the language and there was an intersection between those two things and I just couldn't couldn't believe that I think I said to someone at the time I couldn't believe it was legal you could actually read you know this is legal it's available uh, to consume and so uh yeah so I loved it and I started going on lots of courses and just to really just read more poetry and then you know a bit by bit I started writing it and then I did a master's at University of East Anglia and then I published a book and well you know another, another book and a novel so I kind of don't think I um 
I never thought I'd end up in the situation where m most of my day is occupied with words and language, but that's where I am. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. I was thinking about words and I was thinking about how sometimes even the most powerful words can't contain the emotions we sometimes have. Mm. And when I was reading that piece you wrote for the Yale Review, mm. you talk about being on a train to Norwich, was it? Yes, yeah. And then you heard this really difficult news. Can mm. you talk a little bit about that? So just to say, what this was in March 2012, and it's a day I'll never forget, but there were lots of things happening. I was studying uh, for my master's at the University of East Anglia. I was going on, on a train journey to see my tutor with some poems in my bag, and I just got a phone call from a coroner. I, initially, I thought it was a, it was a it wasn't for me because I couldn't quite process the words. But effectively, I um, I was told my brother, my younger brother, had died and very suddenly. And I got off that train, and then I had to return back to London to 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 relay that news to my mother, uh, who was weirdly enough looking after one of my twins who wasn't very well. And and so, I guess the reason why that moment is quite important and I and I suppose I keep going back to it in my writing and my thinking and my ideas was that I think I met that moment at the same time that I was thinking about what language was doing because I was writing as a poet I just started as a poet and and I had to at a very early stage of my my writing career think about what writing what language could contain and actually what you talked about about you know this what's not containable what's ineffable and I realized that um, sometimes language fails us. I mean, dramatically, constantly, violently. And, and that's what I discovered when I was, was in, that, in that, those moments of grief. Um, and I've also discovered that actually there are spaces and forms that allow you to be able to find the language. And, and obviously there are poets that have written for from centuries and you know, ancient poets and prayer that have been able to hold that and illuminate something for us in that work. Absolutely. And I think something else that struck me was about what is the language that one can use when conveying grief? You, you mentioned about going back home to your mum and you didn't know whether to talk to her in your kind of adopted language of English or her language, Punjabi. And again, that really struck me because I find like some words I cannot translate into English. They just don't have that. And I, I find that conversation around grief and our languages of grief really interesting. So do I. So do I. And I think that... Um that what was really curious to me was the fact that actually English is an acquired language for me. I didn't know a word of English until I was five or six years old and I was at school. Before that, I was calling a bucket Balti, you know, and I that was the language I, I was used to. And But of course, now I, I speak, I write and I think in English. But when I was confronted with the language of grief at that moment, it was strange because it was curious to me how my I was having this real tussle with with what language to use. You know, I think that my Punjabi, which is you know, is part of my body really. I think it's a, it was a primal language that was passed on to me. It was first words that I ever learned were Punj Punjabi. That, that 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 was having a tussle with my English, and it was really difficult to explain. But you know, lots of things are difficult to explain when you're in the throes of grief. And I 
I recognise that, actually. I recognise the fact that there was this kind of strange limbo where I wasn't quite sure. I was very unmoored in language. Mm. You know, that in the end, I had to relay that news to my mother in the in the language, I think both languages in the end, and and they were the most most painful words I've ever had to speak to to tell, you know, to, to tell my mother to use the language and to tell her that you know her son had died. But I'm sort of also kind of like intellectually curious as well as obviously you know suffering the the pain of it. I'm also intellectually curious about what was happening with language and and actually. When I wrote the piece for the for the Yale Review, um, I was also interested in what language is available because actually what was really strange to me was that there was no language, there is no word in the English language for somebody that has lost their their child. And given the fact that many, many people lose their child, there is no word for it. There is in in Sanskrit, there's a, there's a word, there's a vilamar. Um, that's a word, and and the word widow and widow are also from Sanskrit, which is really interesting. Yeah. And and actually, though, even those words, when you look at them, they're so, you know, the sonic properties of them. You know, they they carry a mournful quality. You know that that o belom exactly. sounds really mournful. Doesn't yeah, it? And the the vowel, the o, it's so yeah. so sad. Yeah. Um, so you know, I found it in Sanskrit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, weirdly yeah. enough, but why is there no language? Yeah. Um, I feel like there's such a paucity of language for being able to encapsulate something that is so common. Yes, absolutely. So many of those things you've said there really touch the core of me because it feels like so many times I've felt emotions that then I haven't had the words to put to. Mm. And again, what you said about our languages, like I've grown up, like you, I grew up speaking Hindi and Malayalam at home and then went to school and started learning English. So that's very much an adopted language. But now I write and I think in English. But when I wake up in the middle of a nightmare, it's Hindi. Mm, yeah. You know, like I say Hindi. Like yeah. I, It's so bizarre. So that's clearly coded within me. Yes. And I don't know if you feel this. I sometimes feel a sense of loss from those kind of my original language. Like I, I feel like it's I've lost it somewhere. Yes. Like I don't speak the language of... My mother, for example, yeah. Malayalam, you know, she's no more, but she used to kind of recite poetry in it, but I have no access to any of it. So it's almost like by adopting this more Western, more accessible language, mm. I've lost the language of my ancestors. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Absolutely. I feel that acutely too, because uh, Punjabi is a language now that is is lost to me. And I feel that I feel like this sense of bereavement for that, actually. It was really weird because uh, last year I, I was really lucky. I was a writer in residence in um in a bird sanctuary <laughs> in Clyde in Norfolk. And one of my jobs was to write into this space. And, and I felt very odd and strange in this space because it wasn't familiar to me. Um, the countryside is not something I'm familiar with anyway. I decided I want to write syllabize the birds and actually a lot of the poems came out in this language of Punjabi hmm. which was really interesting because I think that's the subconscious hearing something I mean I, it's interesting because when you hear something that doesn't make sense and of course birdsong makes no sense syntactically or you know at all of course hmm. but when you start thinking about trying to work out what it might say it's interesting how you might go to 
you might hear something that might be in the body as opposed to mm. what something that you're in, you're trying to intellectualize. Yeah. So there's some poems actually that are just Punjabi words, nonsensical, but you know mm. they're trying to make sense of that. I think. Yeah, that's that's absolutely beautiful. And also, I read somewhere that language is the more rational part of our brain does language. So sometimes when the the feelings are so primal, we can't access language. It's almost like they're, they're two different circuits, I believe. Yeah. So which explains sometimes how we can't find the words. Literally, we can't find the words. Yeah, yeah. I I I feel that acutely all the time. And sometimes, I mean, it was interesting when you were talking about loss of language. I mean, I sometimes I can't identify at all what it is that I'm feeling. Yes. I just feel that there is this sense, and I can't. Yes. And I think that's down to the fact that we, as immigrant children, lose our lang, our, our yeah. kind of mother tongue, you know, for want of a better word, yeah. or term, quite early. Yes. You know, I think I lost my language, my Punjabi. I think probably by the time I was 10, it was all gone. I remember I went to India when I was six and I, apparently I was chattering away in Punjabi to my aunts and uncles and cousins. And then I went again when I was 20 and it had gone. And that there is loss. Yeah, how sad is that? How Not being able to like communicate yeah. other than really kind of like basic ways you yeah, know, with, yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with your grandparent, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I get that basic communication. I, I'm the same with Malayalam. Like it's very basic. Mm. I can't explain anything more complex than I would like a meal or, <laughs> you know, like very perfunctory kind of language. Yes. And I'm like, I have all this stuff inside me that I can't put into this language that I was born into. So I completely get it, completely get it. Why is it that sometimes we are at a loss for words in certain languages? There are some feelings that I just cannot express in English. Whatever it is that I'm trying to say, either the intensity of the emotion or even the taste of a particular beloved food, it feels too big for my adopted language. There are certain jokes in Hindi or Malayalam that just do not translate. And in the same way, some words in English convey feelings that are only specific to English. Isn't that interesting? And then sometimes there are no words, none at all, in any language. There are times when my feelings feel too much too painful, too massive, and then the words feel so inadequate, tiny, useless. For me, language has always felt incredibly beautiful. But recently, I've learned to get comfortable with sitting without language, without words. Let's talk a little bit about grief and poetry and how one has helped the other for you, like your journey within that. I mean, I guess when I was writing, so I was kind of confronted at a very early stage with having to, to write into, in, you know, this is what we do, poets. You know, one of the things, important things about a poet is we attend to things. And I felt mm. very much in language and mm. I felt very much that this big thing had happened in the middle of me writing my you know, starting to write as a poet. Mm. And I had a sort of argument with language as we discussed. And then and then I realized that actually one of the obligations or responsibilities I had as somebody 
who was a poet, was to attend to the grief, mm. the big grief in yeah. language. And I think that that means, you know, telling the truth and listening acutely to what is happening mm. to the body, to people around me and, you know, and to the experience, actually. And um, and I wouldn't say that it was cathartic because often people say that, oh, it must have been very cathartic for you. I just think it, I didn't see it like that. I just saw that I just have an obligation to do it and a duty to attend to to my to my brother in in death. That's how I feel I felt about it. And actually a byproduct of that I hope has been that it's been useful for other people, you know, and people can use the the language and use the poems to step into and and they might, you know, it's a mirror to ourselves. We all suffer. We're all going to suffer big griefs. Yes and these big traumas in our life. And and actually, I think poetry can sort of help you feel less alone in those experiences. Absolutely. I think it can, you can almost find your own grief within the poetry, I think. Mm. Like when I read some, some things, and prose as well. And sometimes I'm like, okay, yes, the thing I couldn't say, someone else has said. Yeah. And there there is comfort in that, I think. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about grief in South Asian culture. Yeah. In our culture, I feel like we are more connected to death and grief. It's a more, it's closer to us than within kind of Western culture where it feels quite removed. Mm. Like just experiences I've kind of been to friends' funerals and the whole kind of, uh, the funerals I've been to, the, the person's body is kind of in a casket. You never see it. It's really far away. And it feels like the opposite in South Asian culture. Like it's just there. It's in front of you. So you've got no choice but to deal with it. Now, I found that a little bit too brutal, particularly with my mother's death. It was there and I couldn't really process the trauma. Mm. I wonder if you had any thoughts about how South Asian culture looks at grief and also about how we communicate with each other within our community about grief. Like, have you have you thought about this at all? I have. I mean, my experience is really, I mean, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that, only because my experiences of grief, grieving have been really particular to to like one big grief which is relating to my brother but I have observed it and I have found that what's very interesting is that there is this definitely this idea of I think linearity and circularity which I sort of am interested in anyway in terms of how we kind of in western culture tend to sort of see grieving and I've read a lot of bereavement literature and none of it apart from maybe two books, which I'll mention, one of one of which is by Joan Didion, which is a wonderful book about the death of her, her husband, and then another book by Denise Riley, which is about the death of her, her son, which, which talk differently about the progress of, of grief. But I think that there seems to be a much more circular way of dealing with grief, I think, in South Asian communities. I think there's a willingness to sort of see it as a not so much a trajectory or a, a kind of a process... Although you process, a, there's, there's a body that's being processed. I think that in terms of talking about the, the dead, it's, it's, it is very, very different in terms of how we don't close it off as much, I think. Yeah. But then there are other people, there are other, I mean, I, my experience has been that, you know, in relation to my brother, for example, many, many people turned up at our house, mostly women. They just basically, these wise women that had been bereaved before that had, something etched on their face, actually, that I realise the bereaved have. You know, they come into the houses, they took over the kitchen, they fed my children when I, you know, we were incapable of, you know, even putting food in our mouths. 
and they they took care of things they took those and I just think that that is something that I was so moved by actually just like this this care this attentiveness is and also they just weren't intrusive they were just sort of doing things and they were just making sure that we were getting up in the morning and being fed and you know we didn't have to think about those things you know those those things that happen to you when you when you're grieving which are just so physical the physical aspects you just can't deal with i mean and which is what was so surprising about being bereaved there is something that's happening to your body it's like a cognitive violence to your body and yet i don't know perhaps it should have been obvious to me that that was what grieving was that it was so physical <laughs> physical as it was yeah but I guess those things, unless you know, I mean, I feel I was, like there's there's an innocence. You yes, kind of lose your innocence. Yes. And a friend of mine actually said she'd lost both her parents quite close together. Had said to me, you know, you just feel like you're suddenly assigned to this room, <laughs> the yes. room of the losing your innocence room, you know, yes. where you've lost your innocence and you never get it back. You know, you just know. But all these women, you know, could yeah. just, I just really felt like very little was said, um, but so much was offered you know, yeah, and yeah, given. Yeah. And it's almost like, it's an awful thing to say, but it's, there is the section of the population that hasn't experienced grief. And then there is the section that has. And you can, there is a difference in the way they are physically, emotionally. I don't know, there's a difference. And I, I can't even again find the words to say what that is. And when you have a have an intense kind of emotional conversation with somebody, you can tell. And it's almost like those who've not lost anybody, they don't have that. Yes. And then those who've lost somebody, they have that. It's it's it's, it's such a simplistic way to say it, but you, there is a difference, and it's a stark difference. I find. I think that's it's this kind of armor. Yes. It's like you lose your. There's this slight yes. emotional armor that you lose all yes. of a sudden. You never really get that back. Yeah. It's a fragile kind of film Absolutely. that we carry, and that that leaves us. And actually, I don't know, it's really odd actually to say this because, you know, it's such a it's such a difficult thing. It's such a difficult grief to, to have lost someone young in our family mm. and so suddenly. But I also feel like, you know, there are things about the grief that have illuminated things for me. You know, they've made me change the way I think about life. You know, there's the other end of that. And I find I struggle with this a little bit because, of course, I'm writing into this grief and I'm trying to be useful and write things. And, and yet a lot of people have mentioned that my the poetry that's come out is really beautiful. And I don't know what to do with that because actually you realise that there is the byproduct is are things like beauty. Yes. And you have to sort of resolve that. You know, there is a guilt with that. Yes. Attendant to that. But yes. those are things that have happened as a result of this terrible event that I wouldn't wish on anyone and wish had never happened to me. But equally, you know, I think it changes you irrevocably. And I don't know, it's a bit like illness, you know. I've been reading quite a lot of essays around illness and and how people talk about illness. Actually, you know, we're all going to be ill at some point, but actually pain and illness, how they give you like a different lens to look through. And I suppose the poet's lens on grief is slightly skewed by by their experience. And, you know, this is this is where I've landed anyway. It's almost like grief allows us to access a deeper part of ourselves that we weren't able to before. And like you're saying, it, it, it's complicated because it's not, you know, because a, a big grief has happened and a big loss has happened and that's really hard. And But then 
it somehow takes you to a deeper place within yourself that you didn't even know you had. I was thinking about grief in South Asian culture and specific communities. And I don't know if you've heard of the Rudalis in yes, Rajasthan. Yes, yes, yeah. And I remember there was a whole film in, yeah. in Bollywood. I think I watched. I don't remember the yeah. film, but I remember the the woman, the women, and and the dark eyes mm. and the dark clothing. And I thought it was quite beautiful. Like there's a whole community who are professional mourners, mm. like a Rudali. It just translates into mourning, crying. I think Rudali. I think from what I remember. And they just turn up. It's a whole group of women that just mm. turn up to your house when you lose somebody, and they express and they cry and they wail and they beat their chests. Mm. But I think the point is that sometimes we are frozen by grief and we're not able to express the sorrow, and they do it for us. Mm. And I thought that was somehow very beautiful and poetic and sad at the same time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, again, it's the performance of yes. it. It's the performance yes. of the grief and the mourning. These women are not connected with the yeah. with the deceased person, but yet they could perform what we cannot perform, which is so, if you think about it, so strange. But also, I think that I mean, I think lots of cultures. I mean, I, I think you can actually hire mourners, can't you? Wow, I think you I know, know yeah, that. I think you can hire mourners if you're wow. if you're worried about uh, attendance, for example. I think wow. I'm sure that you can hire mourners for funerals and things that. like that. Yeah. I, but I think it sort of, there's something else about that, actually, that is interesting, which is ritual mm. and grieving. And what's interesting is about in South Asian culture, we so associate, for example, widows with white. Yes. And widows' behavior is really policed yes. in our in our yes. culture. And I remember that very, very starkly with a neighbor of ours yeah. who's husband had died and and I definitely think there was this expectation of is she doing it right yeah. if other particular customs followed or the rituals followed yeah. and basically she was I don't even think she was that old I think she was about 50 yeah but also my my I remember another incident where my mother's sister my aunt in India she lost her her husband very young like she she was only like in her 30s and she mm -hmm. had four daughters imagine that a widow with four daughters in India wow. in the 1970s and again, it was just like, well, that was the end of your life. Yes. You know, you were just consigned to yes. wearing white and forever the kind of the bereaved. Yeah. And there was a performance. Yeah. So that is curious to me. Yeah. But I also think there is something, something that you carry with you, particularly after the first few weeks of, of a death, where you feel as if you are so fragile. You're going out in the world, you're getting on trains and going to work and meeting people. And no one knows only you know. And I think that, you know, <laughs> I was thinking about this um, the other day when, you know, looking at the Yale piece, thinking there is something about, you know, when we used to wear black and we used to wear armbands. Yes. And I know no one does that anymore. But there is something about just signposting to the world where you are, that you need to be handled in a different way. You know, this idea of wearing black. And I know we've lost that now, but we've also lost this ability to know Yes, when How, someone is in mourning. Or to just, you know, yeah. just understand or yeah. just give them space or give them a different sort of interaction, you know. So I don't know. I'm not I'm not saying that we should, I'm not advocating that we should all go back to wearing black. I just think there has to be, a, if we're going to have these kind of communities where we don't know what's happening to our neighbours, I think that maybe we should just think about other ways of ensuring that we can look after those people that are bereaved. Yes, in some way. I absolutely agree. And I think 
there isn't that in society now. So we, maybe we've left the, and I'm glad we've left the widows have to wear white and can't get married and have to shave their heads and all this stuff. And that's yeah. awful. And I think it's a real shame that women were put through that in our culture. And yes. some it still carries and men, on. And men weren't. And men weren't. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. you're, as a woman, your life was yeah. finished. Your husband's dead now. There's no purpose yes. to you. So it just makes me really angry. Or even, you know, your husband's dead and you're, we're going to now put you on the fire. Yes. Oh, my so, God. Yes. So that's, yes. that's that's no... But it, but I think that what it tells tells you is that these are deeply entrenched rituals yeah. um, that come from, I mean, you know, um, uh, you know, annihilating yourself, for example, annihilating a... I mean, basically saying to a, a, a woman who is widowed, well, that's the end of you. You are, li- you are basically going to have a living death now. Yeah. Because you're now invisibilized yeah. in our society, yeah. you no longer you no longer speak. Yeah. You're on the periphery. You're on the margins. You're you're just whitened out. Yeah, that tells you something yeah. about how brutal it can be. Absolutely, and also they used to have all of these things. I don't know if that happens in Punjab, but certainly in, in a lot of the North, North India, that you wouldn't have a widow in any functions mm. or marriages because she would bring bad, bad luck. luck. Yeah. I mean, how awful is that? Not only has this woman lost her husband yes. yeah. and is being completely kind of obliterated by yes. society and then you're told that you're bad luck so you're mm. not allowed into any of these functions. You know, it's just awful. I was thinking the other day that there were so many different kinds of griefs. You know, there's the, you know, I can't even imagine the grief of losing a child. Some of us have lost parents and siblings and and there's... I've experienced a lot of grief for a childhood I never had. So I think I had to go back and really say, I'm really sad that that Mm. childhood never happened. So I was just thinking out loud, how do we navigate these various kind of strands almost of grief in our lives? And we've all had some of it at one point or the other. Well, we could start by thinking of language for for what it is that we are grieving for and, and accepting it once we've identified it there's a really interesting quote by um jung where Mm. he says we may not want to engage with it but nevertheless it will engage with us so you can run from it but you can't hide from the you know so i think that i think it's important to understand that what we carry when we were younger we carry in the body you can ignore it we can not confront it or we can try and gently have a conversation with it yeah and understand how it might influence our decisions. You know, I mean, I mean, most therapists will tell you this anyway. But I yeah. think that, but I think it's important that we don't try and pretend that our memories are in little boxes, little hermetically sealed boxes, and they're over there, because uh, I think that that is a hiding to nothing. Because really, and this is the same, this is the thing with grief, actually, and and with any kind of trauma and trauma memory, we are tripping over our trauma memories in particular all the time. They're like tripwires yeah. through the day. Often they kind of blindside us. Yes. So let's just accept that rather than pretending that they are sealed little, because they leak out, you know, hmm. and they're so leaky and we are sort of messy, you know, yes. we're not kind of computers. Yes. Even our griefs are messy they upend us and there's no no particular trajectory. There's no way, one way of grieving. All I know is that the idea of closing down something like grief, I think is, I think, deeply problematic and really unhealthy. And I think our society lends itself to closing it down, to like getting it over and done with, 
to fix it to a particular time. Yeah. And then if you don't do that, then you're aberrant. You're an aberrant, you know, or, you're, or you, they medicalize you and, you know, it's completely wrong. And I think we just need to find other ways and other language to think about how we stay healthy with, with trauma and, and grief included. Absolutely. And I think what you just said there, which is society expects us to have this very neat kind of trajectory of grief where you get X number of days, weeks, months, whatever, mm. to have various stages of grief. And then you're supposed to be done with it. And it's never that simple. Um, nobody I know who's experienced grief, for them it's that simple. It comes up, it leaks out, like I think you say so beautifully. I think we've got to change that expectation. I don't quite know how, though, within society or what we can do. I think we just have to have conversations and we need to provoke and not accept what's handed down to us. South Asian women in particular who are yeah. often reduced or troped or invisibilized anyway, yes. you know, I think we have to find ways of not accepting what's given, what the structures. And sometimes we just have to think about making our own language for things and, and challenging, being curious, provoking the whole, t and, and being completely active. I mean, and language is part of that, you know, yeah. not accepting the language, thinking of other ways of, thinking of different forms, actually, mm. you know, not accepted forms. Yeah. There's lots of ways of telling stories. Yeah. Um, there's not just one way. Do you find, and I've, I've, only say this because I found it myself that sometimes when you you introduce grief into a conversation it gets very uncomfortable for people mm. how do we navigate that yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I think that first of all there has to be safety mm. in those conversations mm. I think that it's an uncomfortable thing for most it people is. this is the thing about grieving you know we are made to feel like it's unusual but actually it's commonplace yes you know it's commonplace yes. <laughs> and um you know we have been dying for like a long long time yes. it's just <laughs> <laughs> I love that. um so but it's just how our society is unwilling to to yes. to discuss it and exactly. i get it you know there are certain forums yeah. where it's probably not <laughs> birthday parties maybe not you know yeah. weddings it's a jolly occasion but, <laughs> I'm going to talk about grief <laughs> but um I think it's we don't talk about it nearly as much as we should and actually most people that you speak to will be recovering from something grief related or know mm. somebody you know mm. it's it's just it's, it's inescapable it's, isn't it? it's, it's inescapable <laughs> it really is and um so let's try, let's not try and pretend. I mean, it's not really our fault. I think our culture is such that we try to wrap things up in cling mm. film and sweeten things up. Yes. You know, grief doesn't really fit, fit <laughs> in the agenda. It's not really Instagrammable, is it? <laughs> grief isn't Instagrammable. I love that. <laughs> so, I mean, so I think that, but it's, it is, it's essential part of who we are. It's a texture of our humanity. You know, we can not deal with it and not be equipped or yeah. we can just start thinking about using a language that will help us yeah. to equip us and equip equip the people we know and love when it happens. Yeah. I was thinking about what other people could do. So there's one is us kind mm. of use finding the words and using the language and talking about it. And that's been a huge struggle for me because I think I my first response and it was a trauma response now thinking back. I just shut it down. I'm mm. like, okay, if I don't access any of this, none of it is real. And obviously, 
it'll come out in a million ways yes. and it does and it did. So that journey was to kind of get okay with being close to grief. Yes. Then finding the language for it within myself. And now I'm slowly starting to find the language to express it to other people, I think. But how can other people help us, help anybody that's in a grief journey? What mm. do you think they can do? And sometimes I think they can be quite hurtful without meaning to yeah. because they don't really know if you've not experienced it. You don't understand. Yeah. What are the ways that they can help? I mean, I think it's really simple. I just think that we should just use our imaginations. Our God-given imaginations can take us really far. So just a, just a little comment, which is that I don't think people were being hurtful when my brother died and people were coming to do absource and, you know, support my family when, you know, and visit my, my mum when my brother died. His name was Deepak, by the way. Mm. Um, uh, but I think people would say things like, I just cannot imagine what you're going through. It's unimaginable what <laughs> is happening to you. And I just remember thinking, and this is what I wrote about a little bit, was that, do you, do you not want to imagine it? Because actually, how how is that helping my mother to like saying, yes. you know, I've I've come to I've come to sit with you in your grief, but actually, I can't actually imagine what you're going through because what you've experienced is so out there, so out in another room that I can't even imagine what it would be like. Wow. And I think that, uh, and I, again, it's not a criticism because you know these people are kind people, and actually, I've probably said those words as well. <laughs> But I think that it tells you something about how unwilling we are to go to all four corners of our imagination and actually how important the imagination is. Because actually, when we talk about empathy, what is empathy actually? Empathy is the use of the, it's the imaginative leap. That's what empathy actually essentially yes. is. And so just trying to put yourself, it's like a really simple thing, trying to put yourself in that person's shoes and say, and say I can imagine it and it would be awful if I imagined it. But to say yeah. I cannot imagine it because what you're experiencing is so out of the human realm. Yes. You know? Yes. So is, yes. I think, really not helpful. So just thinking about language and, and actually I think that using your imagination anyway is helpful. Yeah. So Yeah, absolutely. And also I think maybe what I found in my experience is allowing that person to sit with the grief but not asking really you want in all the gory details you know I've had that a few times and you know there was a newspaper article I was writing about m my mother's death and the editor is like well but tell me all the gory details and I'm mm -hmm. like you have no idea what you're asking you know that's awful so I think sitting with somebody giving them space to express but not digging so much that it is extremely painful. Like, oh, yeah. put yourself in their shoes. Like, would you really want to relive that? I think that's such an important point and, and one that I've been grappling a, a lot with because so many people, obviously I, I lost my, my, my brother 10 years ago now and I wrote about it like recently. So it's ten. It's taken me 10 years to to write about it, 10 years to yeah. talk about it with, you know, with you and I'm, I'm grateful I'm doing it. But it's taken me a long, long time because I, I felt like all the questions I was being asked were actually not about what was my brother like but actually the last moments of his death in the, that that last you know the events of his few days or moments and I just think that I don't I think that's really deeply actually quite offensive because 
you can't reduce a person to a yeah. few moments. And actually, that's a desire in the person to know something gratuitous. And I feel like I'm not going to, I don't want to yeah. do that to my brother's memory. And I think that it's also none of your fucking business. Yeah, exactly. So I don't do it. And I just think I'd rather talk about, you know, the things that uh, made him him you know his humor his, his love of cats and you know <laughs> red wine and you know his his beautiful sensitive vulnerable nature those things and i think that turning up actually to the, the house of 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 the bereaved and just holding someone's hand and just saying just 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 tell me about just yeah. you know let's look at some photographs or yes. tell me about them yes. you know I think is enough. Turning up and doing that is enough. I think and that itself is, is a huge amount, I think, where, again, a lot of people feel very uncomfortable and they're not sure, I think, mm. what to say or what to do. But I think what I'd always say is just turn up and what you're saying, like just let's sit and talk about the beautiful moments of this mm. person's life. And too few people do that, I think. Yeah. And which is a real, real shame, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think... Also, you're in a very you're in such a vulnerable position when yeah. you're bereaved and you're sitting with, the, I think those questions. I mean, I remember my mother being asked those questions, and I was constantly having to guard yeah. her and yeah. ensure that she wasn't she was protected from them a bit. Really, I used to think of grief as something just related to death. But having thought about this incredibly difficult emotion so much, I've realized that grief is so much more than that. There are so many shades, so many layers to grief. Of course, the grief of losing someone we hold dear. Then there is the grief of losing a part of ourselves. I sometimes miss the more carefree, giggly version of myself that I used to be a few years ago. Then there is the grief around the concept of home. Moving from India to the UK 17 years ago means that I no longer recognize the India that I go back to. But I have also started seeing grief differently. I used to think of grief as this awful thing that you had to go through. But now, I think of it as something that gently marks the passing of time, of people, of places that are no longer part of me, and that grief is okay. I was also thinking about death and grief and what that teaches us about life. I feel like my mother's death, while it was incredibly, incredibly difficult, made me really think about what I wanted my life to be. Mm. And I feel like death can show us the beauty of life. Mm. It's incredibly painful. It's not, it, I don't say this lightly, but I think it shows us the way forward as well. Yeah, I mean, um, everyone's different. I think that how we carry it, how we deal with it, how it changes us, whether or not you know, many people actually are, feel are paralyzed yes. after a bereavement for many, uh, so, many, so was I. many, you know, many years. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, it, and yeah. it causes so much um, psychological damage, and it's very difficult to when you're in this yeah. sort of stasis. You know, you can't move yeah. on. Yeah. I still feel I agree with you. I think that in a way, it's an opportunity. It's a it's a vantage point to take perspective 
and to to attend to 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 the living actually and not to forget about mm. you know the, the living and trying to learn also you know there are things that you can learn huge things that you can learn from from being in that deep grief you know for that especially in that really weird time in that when you're in that strange limbo and you know you just have lost your footing almost mm. and it feels very strange that strange limbo that often people often talk about again there's no name for that limbo <laughs> um, just like there isn't a name for that time where you know you have you you've, you've notified of a death and then there's no and then you're you're waiting for the funeral I mean, sometimes it can be just moments, like you said, but sometimes there can be no time. There could be like a week or longer sometimes, you know, what that very, very strange time does to you in a strange way makes you look at the world in a very different way. And also time, things happen to time. Denise Riley talks about this, the poet Denise Riley in her book, um, Time Live Without Flow, where she talks about how time completely changes, like this idea of time is thrown out of the window this idea of like you know the the clock <laughs> and time you know either it goes very very quickly or it just seems to just slow down to nothing i think that that vantage point is a really useful way i think of thinking about you know your relationships and your the time we have left let's talk about your book ah <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about your new book yes. and uh which has been shortlisted for the Desmond Elliott Prize yes. i believe congratulations thank you Um, tell me about the book and whatever else you're up to. So I've got two books of poetry. Actually, they 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 are um, sort of almost little like sibling books. Um, and then I wrote a novel really completely by accident. Uh, I, um, <laughs> the accidental I, I fin- novelist. I, I, yeah, I love that. I love that. I'll take that as my title. Um, so I wrote, I finished it in lockdown and it feels like a real lockdown novel. It's about a, a girl, South Asian girl growing up um she's a teenager and the main thing you need to know about her as a protagonist is that she doesn't talk she can talk she's a selective mute and actually a lot of the themes we've just been discussing are in that book around silence what happens to language under the pressure of trauma really it's like a curiosity trail for me mm. you know what is what happens to this girl who's in this very dis- has a very dysfunctional mother she's in the and the weather of kind of like the the trauma of of her mother who's sometimes functioning sometimes not a kind of pressurized suburban atmosphere what happens to language and i guess it's that journey really trying to discover what happens to what happens to her and what happens to language what's the name of the book somebody loves you so somebody loves you which i've got a copy of i still haven't read it and i'm really really looking forward to it what else are you up to workwise well um i've written a lot the last few years and so i'm off to cambridge trinity for two years and i'm i'm really lucky i've got a a writer in residence position there so um, congratulations that sounds you. really exciting yeah, it's really exciting <laughs> you'll have to come and visit me i would love to <laughs> yeah so i'm going to write i'm going to do very little else i think i just need to because i i i've written a lot and i've i've been out a lot i feel like now i need to go back into my cave my writing cave and be porous and read and just make things again and so yes. hopefully i'll be back two years time with things <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure a lot more amazing writing thank you so much mona i feel like we've uh, had the most incredible conversation my mind feels really kind of calm and i don't know that's been a really really lovely conversation thank oh, you so much it's a pleasure i'm sangeeta pillai 
Thank you for listening to Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, to hear inspiring South Asian women challenging patriarchy, a space to be exactly the people we want to be and still feel like we belong in our culture and our community, and ultimately, a space where we feel less alone. I'd love to hear from you, so do get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk or go to my website, soulsutras.co.uk. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and presented by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Anushka Tate, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty. <laughs>